This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to an encore presentation on MPB Think Radio. We're not able to take your call right now, but you can always reach us through email. The address is animals at mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Think Radio. This is Creature Comforts, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today on the show, we'll welcome William McKinley, biologist and white-tailed deer program coordinator for the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. Firearm season for deer opens this weekend, and there are some important updates about the chronic wasting disease that's still plaguing our white-tailed deer population. We'll talk about ways that hunters and outdoor enthusiasts can help keep our deer of Mississippi healthy. And as always, Dr. Major's here ready for some pet questions, and Libby likes to hear your recent brushes with nature. Join our conversation with a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 7464 or email animals at mpbonline.org. Creature Comforts airs Thursday mornings at 9 and repeats Saturday mornings at 6. So good morning. Let's uh, start with you, Libby. Understand that you're still out in Oregon. How are, how are things? What's the weather like out there? It's uh, a little bit for, uh, further along, and uh, we're heading towards winter here. We've had an incredibly beautiful autumn, though. I'll have to post some pictures. Really uh, beautiful colors, fall colors here. But it's uh, it's starting to rain a lot. Uh, the last few days have been pretty wet. And usually it's just kind of a drizzle when I'm out here for um, this part of the year. But we've had some fairly hard rain, like, you know, I guess a couple of inches over the last couple of days. And I'm pretty constant. So we haven't been outside quite as much. But I uh, saw a California quail couple of times recently on our walks and we've been seeing a little bit of deer uh mule deer uh black-tailed deer and you know they even have elk out here so that makes it a little different than we're we're used to in mississippi when you're looking really quick and uh you see those antlers you know you've got a white-tailed deer but out here have to look a little closer uh the elk and the now mule deer is um you know, a little, they're similar to a white-tailed deer. Uh, I think usually a little bit bigger, a little bit different. Uh, if you're a real discerning deer watcher, I'm sure you, you can uh, notice a lot of difference. But to me, they look very similar. And then the black-tailed deer is a subspecies of the mule deer. It's a little bit smaller and darker. And that's what we see uh, right here around the woods where my daughter lives. So that's a pretty, it's fun to see something a little bit different. It looks very similar. And a beautiful deer. We certainly have enjoyed your reports from out west. As you mentioned, it's kind of interesting to get uh, a picture of uh, what nature is like out there, uh, uh, quite a bit different uh, than what we have here in Mississippi. Yeah, in fact, I, what I think you guys have been getting a lot of sunshine and warmer weather lately. It um, oh, it may freeze tonight. Usually, uh, we're we're in the 
low 40s or 30s at nine and then we're only getting up to i guess in the 50s in the day oh gosh yeah we've had uh some really good sunny weather uh you know to me kind of perfect fall weather it's just a little cool uh, but lots of sunshine during the day and so far at night at least here in central mississippi uh, hasn't dipped down uh too cold so uh yeah uh, Dr. Major, uh, we haven't uh, talked about it recently, but I imagine that you're still doing the curbside service at the clinic. Is that right? Yes, we are. And until we get some substantial changes in numbers and this sort of thing, it's very difficult to for us, to, at least, to bring people into the clinic with their pets uh, to keep uh, distancing. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to be as careful as we can. Just curious, has there been a kind of a silver lining to this? Have you seen that maybe uh, with the curbside uh, service, maybe uh, uh, something that worked out better or easier than maybe you would have thought going into it? You know, I miss and we miss the personal contact, which we still have personal contact either through the phone. And sometimes, uh, you know, our techs will go outside and talk to the owner, pet owner, and I do as well. But uh, that we miss that as far as a benefit, uh, it's I would say that we're able to maybe do a little bit more thorough exam uh, than than normal, especially if we have the pet uh, where we can visualize it, see it, do whatever we need to do, and then talk to the owner about it. Uh, so there is there are some benefits, I think. Well, you know, and I'm wondering if it's ever been a problem, but the one thing that I was always uh, sort of impressed with when I've been waiting in in the, when we could wait in the, you know, in the waiting room there is that the dogs and other cats and things don't ever seem to get into too many dust-ups, I guess. (laughs) So is that... No, they don't. No, they don't. And they're they're pretty good about it. We, if we have an animal, uh, whether it's a cat or a dog, and of course, I encourage all cat owners to please bring your cat in in a carrier uh that can be disastrous if uh for example it gets away outside uh and never know what might spook a cat but in general they uh they get along real well you just have to be careful you don't want to put an aggressive animal next to a non-aggressive okay uh, yeah, I'll agree. It's amazing how quickly my cat can uh, make a dash. You know, I've talked about how he likes to run outside and run down the, the driveway. It's amazing how quickly when he's got his mind on it that he can uh, dash and, and go where he needs to go. So good point there uh, for any vet. If you bring your cat there, uh, have him or her uh, in a carrier just to, for a little bit extra security. And as we've talked about before, you certainly don't want your cat running around while you're driving. And improvise if you don't have a carrier. I mean can do a box, cardboard box, some of those are fairly substantial. And worse comes to worse, and people laugh at me for saying this, but I've seen it and I don't want to do this long term. If you have to come in, you have no carrier, uh, you know, a pillowcase works well. And I, that's, some people object to that, but I'd say that it keeps the pet safe and uh, keeps it from getting away. I know that sounds sounds a little flaky, but uh, better than carrying the pet in on you know by hand without any protection you know i was thinking even uh if you needed one uh at the dollar store you know a cheap uh, laundry basket and then you could probably maybe put something over the top of it so there are some right. creative ways if you don't have one of those fancy carriers well laundry basket works quite well you do have to put something over the top but that's an excellent uh carrier we've seen laundry baskets come in with plywood on top you know so 
you can improvise, but just don't lose that cat. All right. Uh, here is an email that uh, maybe you and Libby can both uh, comment on. Uh, I have a big problem with raccoons and feral or semi-feral cats coming into my open carport. I have a cat. Paw, I have cat paw marks on the hood of my car frequently. Animal control will bring out a trap, but it's a flimsy, small thing. I've seen the raccoon, and it's huge. And the feral cats are ragged, large creatures, so that flimsy trap doesn't work. I keep no food outside, but lots of gardening supplies, which they'll dig into. Beverly from Kosciuszko is wondering what she can do. Doctor Major, let's uh, start with you with some ideas. Gosh, you know that's that's a difficult thing to to get into because of the fact that we're talking about wild animals, basically raccoon uh, and feral cats. Now they generally come to a food source, and I don't know if the uh, the uh, gardening supplies have some attraction. I try to put those where they can't get to that. And, uh, you know, as far as deterring or something that's going to cause them to deter, uh, certainly uh, there may be some things that, that might, but a lot of those are toxic. So you get into a problem with your pets. So, Libby, you may have some suggestions. You know, I've not been good at dealing with those kind of problems either, but like you say, I always go back to that food source. Be sure there's not anything that they're attracted to eating or that they're, um, you know, that it smells like food to them. So that's the big deal, isn't it? Oh, I'm sorry for that's a, that is irritating if they're, if, um, I guess they're spraying everything too in the the carport area. It can be a mess. Uh, they they do make something called a scat mat. Uh, some people use it to keep their pet from going up the stairs. Uh, it gives a mild shock, uh, not enough to cause any problems, but at least it, uh, it's enough that they will, uh, you know, not go up the stairs. So I suppose you could put that on your car hood. Uh, it has to be plugged in though to to work. Uh, that that's a possibility. The other thing. They do sell some things that uh, you could put around your, if it's a carport, a little bit more difficult than a, than a garage that has a closed door, uh, would be uh, maybe something, a sensor. Uh, they have sensors that turn a sprinkler on or that would make a noise and a light would come on. So there's there's some things that might work uh, to help uh, help you with that. Also, uh, she mentions the the the, uh, the trap left by animal control is, is flimsy, but uh, I would imagine there are also, I mean, if you problem that you can't seem to solve, there are, I would imagine, things online where you might could go and buy a not-so-flimsy animal trap. Sure, and there are some that are quite, quite substantial. The other thing, and we've had uh, people on before, but critter catchers, uh, they could help and advise you with things that you could do. So I think we have that number uh, somewhere uh, at the station. Uh, can go online, talk to them, and they might have some suggestions or actually come out and help you. Uh, that's a good point, Dr. Major. We've had a guy on that does just that, and uh, so that's something that you could look up online and see if there's something in your area uh, of someone that will help you uh, You know, take care of those uh, animals that are bothering uh, the carport. So uh, it's time for our first break of the hour. When we return, we'll talk with William McKinley from the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. We'll talk white-tailed deer, keeping them out of the garden, what they're up to this time of year, and how chronic wasting disease is affecting the population. So stay tuned.
This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell. Here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield, our guest for this hour is William McKinley, Deer Program Coordinator for the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. You can join our conversation this morning with your phone call. The number is one mpb ring It's one 672 7464 or send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Before we invite William into the show, just to follow up on what we were talking about before the break, we had an email from Beverly and Kosciuszko that was having trouble with raccoons and feral cats uh, on her property. And uh, Dr. Major mentioned the creature, uh, the critter catchers. Uh, we did have one on, Mike McDowell. He was on our show in February, February 13th to be exact. So Beverly, if you're listening and uh, want to re- reference that podcast, that back episode of uh, Creature Comforts, uh, you might get some information. Uh, but also, I think if you do an online search, you might be able to find a critter catcher uh, in your area that would help you out. So as I mentioned, our guest today uh, is William McKinley, Deer Program Coordinator for the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. Uh, William, thanks for having uh, for joining us today. We did have you back in April in the early days of COVID-19. How has uh, the department approached things in terms of different hunting seasons and still trying to stay safe amid the pandemic? Well, I'll... You know, we're responding as many, many different agencies are. And uh, first off, glad to be here. Glad to be on the show again. Look forward to talking beer, and uh, I do that a lot, and I enjoy it a lot. But uh, within COVID, uh, you know, from a hunting aspect, there's no better way to socially distance (laughs) than to go hunting. So uh, we are encouraging people. We've seen fishing numbers, fisher fisher people, the numbers of them up uh, in the past few months. And I am anticipating that there will be more hunters in the woods. And uh, so from our officer standpoint, you know, we're, we're using social distancing. We're, we're, we're using common sense guidelines and uh, following the guidelines as set. But uh, we're continuing. In our office, of course, we're adhering to certain specifications uh, within the office and the mass policy. But uh, as far as business, you know, from a wildlife perspective, this may actually give more people the opportunity to get into the woods this deer season. So uh, I'm looking forward to a really great deer season, which modern firearms open Saturday morning, one half hour before sunrise. So... Yeah, you make a good point because uh, I've, I've mentioned on the show frequently, a friend of mine and I have uh, tried to get out and uh, social distance and get some exercise in the great outdoors and have visited a number of the state parks. And I would I would say a big plug for that. You know, if uh, if you even just enjoy hiking, there are a number of state parks and, and they're all, uh, you know, there's one probably within driving distance of anybody here in Mississippi. Uh, and they're great. The, the trails are well maintained and it's just a great way to get out. Uh, and enjoy nature, uh, as you said, you, and still social distancing, and and you're outside, so you, it's it's a it's a fairly safe activity. So I'm a big uh, supporter of of the state parks uh, that we have here. Very good. Well, we're looking forward to deer season opening this weekend. We have a, a whole lot going on, and you know, 
COVID does bring its own set of unique challenges as we deal with the public. And as I said before, we're using some common sense guidelines and, and guidelines as recommended by CDC there. But uh, uh, we are looking, looking very forward to the season opening and getting it kicked off this weekend. Well, getting the modern firearm portion kicked off this weekend. So as we mentioned, you're the DEER Program Coordinator at MDWFP. Uh, tell us what that entails. What uh, what do you do in your job? Well, within rules and regulations, we'll make, we'll make recommendations for rules and regulations. We uh, personally, within our, our wildlife department, we don't set the regulations. They are either set by our commission uh, on wildlife fisheries and parks or by the legislature. Now, what I do... A lot of what I do these days deals with chronic waste and disease. But also, if I were to sum up what the deer program is, the deer program is data. We get data from harvested deer across the state. We collect roadkill data. We collect data from spotlight counts. We're watching our deer herd across this state uh, to the best of our ability. And uh, so the deer program coordinator is all about coordinating getting that data, putting it together, and, and generating an output from that data that we're collecting statewide. Um, are, others managed, uh, are other animals managed with uh, programs like with the white-tailed deer? Yes, very similar. Our wild turkey program, uh, uh, we have waterfowl program coordinator, turkey program coordinator, small game program coordinator. Uh, yes, other programs are managed in, in similar manners, and, and we... That's basically our job is looking at making sure we gather the proper data, uh, teasing out the good data from the bad data, because bad data is worse than not having data, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> then being able to generate a usable product out of that that helps the wildlife and hunters in this state. Uh, so as you mentioned, uh, firearm season for deer opens this weekend. Uh, what are some things uh, that hunters should know before uh, heading out in the woods? Number one, make sure you buy a hunting license, uh, unless you are exempt, and uh, which exempt could be under 16 years old or over 65. And we even offer an exempt license for those hunters. So uh, if it's not mandatory, but we do encourage it. Cause, uh, also, if you're hunting with a firearm, if you're deer hunting with a modern firearm or hunting during a firearm deer season, you got to wear 500 square inches of hunter orange. And I encourage folks, that's not, uh, that is for people's safety. That is for human safety. Uh, I've often, you know, there's been a lot of studies done into deer sight. Uh, deer, when they look, they, people say deer are colorblind, but they're not really colorblind. They see a different realm of the color spectrum than we do. The orange blends to green. So if they were to look at green and orange, and this is through quite a bit of tests at UGA on deer, and they have a lot of trouble differentiating orange from green. So you think camo, you think orange. It really doesn't stand out that much, but they can see blues vividly. Uh, so I always shake my head at a guy that we, uh, one of our officers catches out there. He's not wearing hunter orange. But he's wearing blue jeans when he's hunting. Uh, he's not wearing hunter orange because he says the deer may see him, but the deer are seeing him because he's wearing blue jeans. So uh, I encourage hunters, put on that hunter orange, wear it. Uh, 
the vests that are broken up with a camo pattern are not legal. It's got to be blaze, you know, blaze, unbroken, 500 square inches, and that is a vest. Uh, the simple little vest they sell for a few bucks in all the sporting goods department. So wear that hunter orange. And the other is uh, highly encourage folks to get somebody else involved in hunting this season. There's, you know, there's been a lot of pushes toward taking kids hunting, but now there's even more of a push toward getting adults who were never exposed to hunting. And that push is ongoing uh, across the country. Uh, so, we encourage people to take take a friend hunting with them. If you know it's it's not something that you can, it's not easy to learn by yourself. Let me say that it, it's always better to have a mentor who will take you and show you a few of the finer points. And it can be a bit intimidating uh, right out of the gate if you're thirty years old and forty years old or twenty and have never been hunting before. So. Take somebody out and introduce them to the outdoors and uh, gain a new hunter out there. You know, I, I didn't know that about the orange and the deers. That's that's a fascinating story, and so it really makes a whole lot of sense. We can see it, so, you know, you're, we can see it's another person, but in terms of the deer, as you mentioned, you're actually camouflaging yourself better than you could maybe wearing camo. Well, maybe not better than camo, but <laughs> not that different than wearing camo, so... Uh, Deer pick up movement very well, and uh, so that's a key thing to remember. They can see movement. Their their vision right at dusk and dawn is not a whole lot better than ours. Um, they can see at night better than we can, but in those waning hours, they can't see very very good. When you know what I mean, and when you're driving down the road and the headlights don't exactly work yet, mm. and in the evening, uh, they can't see much better than we can then. Uh, we've got a call to get to, but one thing I wanted to uh, have you mention, because uh, I think it's important, when we talk about licensing, where does the money that people pay for their licenses go? So I'm glad you asked that. So uh, we work as the Wildlife Bureau, the biologists, we work off of license sales. And so the general tax dollar, we don't get general tax dollars. So when you pay your state taxes, we don't get that. Money from license sales, the, the North American model set up wonderful that money comes in from hunters and sport hunters, fishermen, sportsmen, and it pays for the conservation of wildlife and fisheries. So no general tax dollars coming in. Hunters and fishermen buying hunting license are what support your wildlife agency. So we need more hunters. Now there's also a tax out there that when you buy hunting ammo or, or any ammunition, archery equipment, fishing gear, uh, there's a federal excise tax on those, uh, back from Pittman-Robertson Act and the Dingle-Johnson Acts. And those monies are set aside, and we get to claim a reimbursement from the federal government based on how many licenses we sell. We have to spend the money before we can get the reimbursement, though. So when that money is set aside for conservation in the United States, it's a wonderful system the way it's set up. But when you see hunter numbers start to go down, and then it hurts it hurts our state pretty badly because we're able, we're no longer able to get that match of those dollars back. And bottom line is hunters and fishermen are paying for wildlife conservation. 
We do have a caller on the line, so we say good morning to Joe, who's in North Mississippi. Good morning, Joe. You're on the air with us. Good morning. Thank you. Got a question. Uh, what is the white deer population like in Mississippi, and what should a hunter do should they see one? Okay, Joe, uh, a white deer can either be, um, well, it can be a non-native species for one. So fallow deer, which were imported from China, I believe it was, can have a white uh, phase. Uh, so that's a totally different animal. But white-tailed deer, our native deer, you can see a white one as an albino, uh, which is quite rare. Uh, in my career, I've actually... Uh, know of like two in the state now these would be pure white pink nose pink hooves uh true albino then there is another uh genetic mutation called a piebald and it's a genetic anomaly where the deer has more white in its coat than a normal deer so this deer may be 95 percent white and it may just be 10 percent more white it may be salt and pepper it may be blotched like a cow a Holstein cow. Uh, so those particular deer and the, the, the albinos are genetic mutations, especially that piebald. A lot of people want to protect them uh, and say, hey, we don't want to harvest that deer. But that particular gene is also linked to other diseases like rickets, lowered immunity, poor antler development, uh, increased susceptibility to other diseases, misshaped organs, a whole lot of things are tied to that same gene. So I encourage people to harvest those deer whenever they get the opportunity, legally. All right, uh, Joe, we appreciate your call. Uh, time for a break this morning. When we return, we'll continue our discussion uh, with William McKinley. He's the Deer Program Coordinator for the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. We're going to talk about chronic wasting disease and the health of the deer population. Also, Dr. Major's here ready for your pet questions, so stay tuned. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11, or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. Kevin Farrell here on Creature Comforts with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Our guest today is biologist William McKinley. He is the deer program coordinator for the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. The phone number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464, or send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. So, William, we are about to talk about uh, the chronic wasting disease. And first, though, here's an email uh, that you and Dr. Major both might be able to uh, chime in on. Uh, It says, I've had signs of deer coming in my yard. I don't know what could be attracting them. So far, it hasn't eaten my garden, which has happened in the past. My question is, with the deer disease, is there any risk for cats and dogs getting sick? And this comes from a listener in Natchez. So I'm assuming that they mean with chronic wasting disease, there has been a, a fairly extensive study on the canines 
that showed uh, after feeding infected venison to them for quite a long time, they never became infected. The canines didn't. So, not so sure of a study on the cats, but uh, unless you are feeding uh, those animals, you know, unless you're feeding them an infected animal, just coming into the yard is probably going to be a very minimal, minimal risk. And plus, chronic wasting disease appears to be confined to a few counties at this point. We're still looking for it. We, we won't be surprised when we find it in other areas. But uh, I would not be concerned. If, and there are ways to deter those deer if they want to take those measures as well. Uh, is that what you would say, Dr. Major, in terms of uh, our pets uh, not, not needing to worry about uh, chronic wasting disease? I would agree with that. Really, the uh, the real thing there would be the uh, fact that they have done studies in dogs. Uh, cats, uh, I think, would be minimal risk, very minimal, if there was such a thing. But I, I think our canine and feline uh, pets are not at risk. All righty. Uh, so, William, tell us, what is chronic wasting disease? So, this disease was one of those... Uh, one of those beasts that we looked for for years, hoping we'd never find. It is a, a neurological disease that affects the brains and nervous system of an infected animal, and it's caused by a prion. So this is different than a virus or a bacteria or a fungi, which we normally associate with disease. A prion is not alive. It is a mutated mouse uh, misfolded protein that when it comes into contact with other proteins, it can, it causes them to misfold, ultimately making, when it gets in the nervous system, primarily spread through ingestion. So an animal eating after another animal or licking another animal. They are social, very social creatures. They groom one another. So once they get it, it is 100% fatal. Uh, it has a long incubation period. Generally, a minimum of 16 months within a few deer that stretching out to several years. Uh, but unfortunately, after a few months post-infection, they are spreading it, shedding these prions and able to, sh- to spread it to other deer. So a disease that has already been found in 26 states and three or four Canadian provinces it's spreading across our landscape uh, in this country fairly quickly. Neighboring states of Tennessee and Arkansas both have uh, pretty big breakouts of it, uh, two of the largest breakouts in the country, as a matter of fact. And that Tennessee breakout is the same one we share with them. It appears to be centered uh, less than 10 miles north of the Mississippi state line. And so we have found it in Benton, Marshall, Panola, Pontotoc, Tallahatchie, and Issaquina counties. can't tell you if the Issaquina is connected to the others. It's 200 miles between those infections. Uh, but we definitely know that Tennessee has a very bad breakout uh, outbreak of it. Um, in fact, I just got their numbers this week. They're up to 729 positives, and they found it in uh, January of 19. So, or December of 18, right around that at time frame. So just a little over uh, two years there. And they're at 729. We have found 59 positives in Mississippi so far. And so it's spread, as you mentioned, through the, the social interaction of the, of the deer? 
Yes, primarily, and it's believed to be picked up through ingestion. Uh, so when a deer actually uh, uh, deer groom one another by licking one another a lot, it's believed to be passed that way. And after direct feeding after one another, which is why uh, we have you know, our CWD management zone encompasses 22 counties. So we come out well outside of where the positive is found in a radius, and the counties that lie within that radius fall within. We've got radio collared studies just from the past couple of years of deer in Mississippi moving, you know, 14, 15 miles and then turn around and coming right back. Uh, so we need those wide radiuses. And so what happens in those counties in the zone is it is illegal to feed deer. It's illegal to feed wildlife uh, other than backyard bird feeders in those 22 counties. And also, if you harvest a deer uh, at any time during the season, within those 22 counties, uh, you may not leave those 22 counties with the whole deer. It has to be deboned meat. Uh, we primarily want to leave the bones and all of the nervous system and lymphoid tissue back at, you know, it, it needs to be disposed of properly. That's the highest concentration of these prions. Uh, a recent study came out just a few weeks ago that showed the amount of infectious material that infected deer in a lab setting 100% of the time was equivalent to one very fine grain of sand, very, very small amount, uh, just about 300 nanograms. And my brain didn't work in nanograms. I had to look up something equivalent. A grain of sand turned out to be about the size of positive material that will infect a deer. So we stress to people, uh, even if it seems innocent, if you're in those counties having just feeding a few deer in your backyard, it's not a good idea. It's really not a good idea. It's illegal uh, for one, but it's also not a good idea for the health of the wild of, of the other deer herd. And the thought being there that if you feed the deer that are sick, that they remain in the population and could possibly affect other deer. Well, deer are a little bit messy eaters, and if they're sticking their nose in a feeder and salivating and food's falling out, remember that one fine grain of sand? Mm -hmm. Well, they're going to leave prions there in that feeder for the next deer to eat after. It would kind of be the equivalent of us all going to a restaurant tonight in COVID and we're just going to all eat off the same plate. And in fact, uh, and we're not going to wash it between us. So uh, <laughs> kind of figure out what would happen there. <laughs> that, that's that's a very vivid example that, that certainly brings home the point. Uh, are humans at risk for chronic wasting disease? So there have been no documented human cases of CWD crossing into humans. But the chances of that is not zero. So we stress, we encourage people. The Center for Disease Control recommends that people, if they're hunting in a CWD area, they get their deer tested. We offer free testing, 46 drop-offs across the state. And uh, they just drop a deer head off, and we will we collect them on Mondays. We thaw them, we cut them on Tuesdays, we get them to Jackson and enter the data, and it goes to the, the Pearl lab, the MSU Vet Diagnostic Lab in Pearl. They do the, the actual sample testing, and we try to turn that sample around as quickly as possible. Generally takes about a two-week time frame. But uh, 
we they can then view their results online if they if the deer is positive uh i call them myself or one of my superiors or my colleagues will call them directly usually me so i stress again it's not a zero chance but there's been no documented cases and for peace of mind get your deer tested these all of these stations are on our website they can look and they're just drop off. They're just literally chest freezers stuck at convenient locations like Elvis Presley Lake in Lee County. Uh, I'll give you an example. You pull up, you have the head of the animal that you've harvested with the antlers removed. You drop that head in a garbage bag that's there. You fill out a little card. You tear the bottom of the card off as your receipt. Zip tie the card to the bag in order to close the bag with a provided zip tie drop it in the freezer and drive off and you can check those results online i also want to point out that this coming weekend for every county that's in a cwd management zone so that's 19 counties in north mississippi and twin and three counties in the south delta it is mandatory sampling if you harvest a deer saturday or sunday in those 22 counties and you have to get it checked uh those two days um, what about how can the public help if uh, if someone's out hunting and they see a sick deer or what looks to be uh, a sick deer? What what should they do and and how does that help? Well, if the deer is legal to harvest, we encourage them to harvest that animal and call us, contact us if they see a sick animal. So, if, uh, if anyone finds a sick animal that and they're not hunting, they can call us and our officers. Will, will come and we typically will euthanize that animal uh, and then we will send it in uh, well and test it for a variety of other diseases as well if we have the whole animal at hand and fresh just to try to figure out what the animal may have but we will sample you know we'll get well over a hundred sick deer calls every year and only three or four percent of them turn out to be CWD so we talk about sick animals, but remember, CWD has a long incubation. And we found 59 uh, positive deer in Mississippi. Only six of those 59 have looked sick. So 53 look perfectly healthy, including the guy I called the day before yesterday with another positive. Uh, Benton County, Mississippi, and Marshall County, Mississippi, have the highest prevalence. Um, I'll point out that we're actually having a uh, hosting a, a meeting tonight. Uh, it'll be on Facebook Live uh, where we're talking directly to the people in Benton County. We haven't had a public meeting there yet, and we're going to be looking at that data. And I encourage people listening, go to go to Facebook, go to MDWFT, Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks, and view that tonight at 6 p.m. And from Ashland North, if you live in North Mississippi, you know that Ashland is about halfway down Benton County. From Ashland North, from the samples we had last year, last year's samples turned in uh, 29% of the bucks had CWD north of Ashland. So that's a very, very high prevalence. So we encourage people there to get those deer tested. 
All right, let's uh, take our final break of the hour. When we get back, we'll continue our discussion with William McKinley. He's our guest today from the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. Libby and Dr. Troy Major still on hand as well. Call in with questions and comments. We've got some open phone lines. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Back to wrap things up after this. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is Creature Comforts. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield, and our guest today is William McKinley. If you missed any of today's program, you can always subscribe to our podcast using your favorite podcasting app or download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone. Uh, William, we had an email that talked about controlling the feral the feral hog population in Mississippi, and I know that's not your area, uh, but in general, when people have questions about that, I would imagine that uh, the MDWP is the source to go, and if, if they called the office or went online, would they be able to find that type of information? Absolutely. Uh, we have a uh, in, we have a wild hog program leader. Uh, we do not consider them a game animal, nor do we support them being a game animal. They are a nuisance animal, and let's make sure that folks know that. They are a, a terribly destructive, exotic, invasive animal that is that are now found in all 82 counties. Uh, you know, from our we have a, a, a phone survey we do every year, and there were actually 1.4 hogs harvested for every deer last year, according to that survey. These, their numbers are skyrocketing across the state. But, yes, go to our website, call our Jackson office at 601-432-2199. They can get you in touch with our wild hog program leader, Anthony Ballard, and uh, he would be happy to discuss means and um we encourage people to remove them at every opportunity legally. All righty. Uh, let's back go back to the phone lines to wrap things up. We'll talk with Jim in Meridian. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Uh, man, I just had a question. Uh, if you've got your own land, uh, is it required? Do you have to have any hunting license? I've heard that you, some say you do, some say you don't. And as far Jim, as it has to be listed in your name. So if it's listed in your name as the owner, your wife can't hunt on it without a license, or your kids, or if they're over 16. So whoever's name it is titled in, and that only applies to residents. So if you live in Alabama and own land in Mississippi, even though it's titled in your name, it, you still have to have a hunting license. Okay. And the corn, the, uh, the baited field, everything is still the same distance as it would be as on a hunting club or something like that, right? Oh, uh, you're talking about supplemental feeding. Supplemental feed in the other 60 counties. So in 22, it's banned completely. In the other 60 counties, it has to be in an above-ground covered feeder or put in a uh, distributed through a spin cast feeder, a stationary spin cast feeder. 
And uh, there is no minimum distance that a hunter has to be. That was removed a couple of years ago. So you can sit on top of the trough if you so oh. desire. Okay. Uh, I was wondering that uh, I had a friend of mine. He had went and hunted out there. And uh, anyway, uh, he had a ticket for hunting over Baited Field. He was, I think he was about 200 yards from it, but he still got a ticket. He didn't contest it. He just went on and paid it. So if he had put it on the ground, then that would have been a clear-cut violation. So, okay. If they pour right. it on the ground, it is not allowed to be poured on the ground, and that is to prevent uh, aflatoxicosis is the primary reason for that. So, okay. All righty. Well, I appreciate you. Thanks, right. Jim. Good to hear from you in Meridian. Uh, so, William, sort of to wrap up our chronic wasting disease discussion, or at least this part of it, uh, if someone takes their deer to a commercial processor, what should they request of, of the commercial processor? Well, we have put out within a lot of literature our, our CWD guides, which we have online right now, some best management practices. And uh, they can request that their meat not be batched with someone else's. Uh, some some processors may and some may not do that. Uh, or deer meat may come in and several animals get batched up and the amount come back out. Uh, I can't say whether they are or not. Uh, but they can request that it not be for their specific animal. Uh, that would be one one thing I would I would request. So, and that would be about well, that would be what I would request from them. All right, and just uh, just so that we're clear, um, if 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 the your if the deer is has the disease, can you can you eat the meat? This. Center for Disease Control recommends you do not eat a positive animal. So whenever we have a positive and we call that person, as I did yesterday, uh, we ask them if they are willing to turn over the meat. We don't force them to, but if they are willing, we pick up that meat and we incinerate it. So we treat it, uh, we want to remove it off the landscape completely and out of the food chain completely. But the CDC's recommendations is are do not eat a positive animal. I, I heard one researcher say, you know, we there's a lot of unknowns about this disease. If you want to make sure you're not the first human case ever, don't eat a positive animal. There's it's too easy to get your animal tested and have that peace of mind. All right, got a couple of minutes left, and, and before we wrap up, we want to say again, thank you so much for being on the show with us. You've uh, you've got a great sense of humor, and you have given us some really good information in a way that I think all of us uh, that are listening can can understand. Well, you're quite welcome. Uh, enjoy being on the show, and uh, I just say again that I encourage hunters. You know, a lot of college ball games have been postponed or canceled or or just reduced attendance. Saw that. That's going to possibly bring more hunters to the woods this weekend. Be safe. Take somebody who's never been hunting. Get out there and hunt. We want people to hunt. We want people to be aware of chronic wasting disease, but not afraid of it. Get your deer tested. And go out and harvest a deer. You know, a few years ago, we changed the rules so that uh, one buck of choice may be harvested on, on private land. So that means that a new hunter can take any antlered deer they see, one of. After that, the next two have to meet the spread and main bean criteria for a legal buck in that area. But that's another effort to get more people involved and get get more people harvesting deer. 
Uh, and as we mentioned before, importance of having a license. How does someone go about getting a, a hunting license? They can call 1-800-5-GO-HUNT. They can log online. They can go to any dealer. Uh, most of the Walmarts and sporting goods stores uh, will sell license. It is very, very easy. And uh, I encourage hunters also to, we have an app, uh, 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 MBWC app. Load that app on your smartphone. And uh, also, we have a voluntary check system, game check. They log that deer when you harvest it. So, But buying a license is very easy. You will need a hunter safety course. Uh, if you have not taken that, we offer those online now, fully online after COVID. So uh, get out there and get in the woods. All righty. The best place to socially distance. That's, that's so true. Thanks, William, for being with us. That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. Funding provided in part by generous listeners like you. To hear today's show or previous show, you can go to mpbonline.org slash Creature Comforts. Our show is produced each week by Java Chapman, and our call screener is Liz Gill. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest, William McKinley, I'm Kevin Farrell. Stay tuned, because up next, it's the autocorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We're here on the air every Thursday morning at 9. It's Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio.